your Bibles open to Acts chapter 9. We'll be going back to it fairly regularly. Well, uh, you guys have noticed, a uh, big part of our church is away. They're all at family camp. And I thought it'd be a good opportunity to then push pause on our journey through the book of uh, 2 Samuel. And instead make today a testimony Sunday. And just in case you're wondering what a testimony is, uh, that's just Christianese, right? For the story of how someone comes to be a Christian or a disciple of Jesus. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard some wild testimonies. And maybe you even have one of your own. But uh, today I wanted to share with you one of the wildest testimonies I've heard recently from someone that I went to seminary with. I have to leave out some details for the sake of his safety, but the first thing uh, to know about him is that he was born and raised in a majority Muslim African country, and he was born to a really prestigious family and just happened to be the grandson of one of the most powerful and rich imams or Muslim leaders of that country. Now, my friend was something of a rising star in his family, following you know, in his grandfather's footsteps, basically on his way to becoming an imam himself, obtained a a PhD in Islamic law, went all the way to Saudi Arabia to teach. But one night, out of nowhere, he started having these intensely vivid dreams of someone, some otherworldly figure it seemed, calling to him, by name. And these dreams were initially terrifying to him. They felt scary real, so much so that he even started sleeping with a gun under his pillow, just in case someone was messing with him or out to get him. And he also had a bunch of guns and loved playing with them. Now, the one question, as you might imagine, that he wrestled with in these dreams basically what we would all probably ask is who or what are you and what do you want from me why won't you just leave me in peace well like I said he had a few of these dreams and after a while my friend got a shocking answer to this very question who are you the answer made his uh, gun utterly pointless because Turned out the one that was calling to him revealed that his name was none other than Isa, right? Or as we know him in English, Jesus. Jesus. Now, I'm not telling this story to get you guys all hung up about the weird mystical side of it, you know, visions and dreams, because actually what followed was quite ordinary. He basically started on this secret journey of seeking Isa. He started reading his Bible, learning about Christianity. And all this turned his world upside down. And it ultimately led him to repent and actually become a follower of Jesus. It was really cool to attend seminary with him. And it was also kind of sad to learn that as a result of making this decision, 
he basically forsook everything from his prior life. You name it, family, friends, fortune, reputation. Last I heard, there was a death warrant out for his, uh, for his head in his homeland. But the last thing that he'd want from any of us is our pity. Because for him, Jesus was absolutely worth it. All that other stuff, so much of it was good, but none of it was ultimate. Just shadows of the true substance, which is Jesus, right? Who alone is the true and lasting reward. No one and nothing else. And here's something else that's wonderful and almost unbelievable about this very Jesus. And my former Muslim friend saw this all throughout the scriptures. He's always calling people to himself. And oftentimes, the last person that you'd expect. And by the way, that's a, that's a story that's essentially behind every testimony, including yours and ours, right? But, uh, testimonies aren't these fun, interesting stories about how we sought out God. But rather, every testimony... Yours and mine is ultimately the story of how God has sought us out. Even sending his very own son to us. And today as we open Acts chapter 9, we're going to be looking at such a testimony where Jesus is doing what he's always doing, which is calling people to himself. And today we're going to see that the Lord uh, is going to get a hold of a man named Saul who many of you know better as Paul. And uh, for the record, and this corrected kind of a, a misunderstanding I had, he didn't change his name to, to Paul from Saul. Right? He went by both. Saul was his Hebrew name, and Paul was his Greek name. And he'd go by one or the other depending on the, the cultural context. Right? This is pretty common to, to immigrants who have uh, two ethnic backgrounds or whatever. and. And just for the sake of clarity, I'm going to be sticking with Saul today, right? which is maybe sometimes going to feel a little weird. Now, the first thing to know about Saul is that he was one of the most early and severe persecutors of the Christian church. He was a true enemy of the disciples of Jesus. Look again at uh, verse 1, chapter 9, where we see just this. Verse 1, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So why? Why is Saul breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus here, who by that time were also known as people who belong to the way? The answer is simply this. Saul was a faithful and zealous Jew of uh, impeccable ethnic and academic pedigree. And he considered this way of Jesus to be a damnable heresy. And I'm using that correctly, not as a swear word. And especially to Saul's shock and disgust, most of these followers of the way were fellow Jews who should have known better, right? Now, what was this heresy 
that these uh, disciples of Jesus, what were, they, what were they proclaiming everywhere they went? Well, what they were proclaiming was that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was already very famous in the region and who was recently crucified to death, you know, if it, if, if it ended there, there'd be no controversy. But problematically, hundreds of eyewitnesses were going around proclaiming that Jesus didn't stay dead, that he had risen from the dead, which if true, could have only meant one thing, that this crucified and risen Jesus must be none other than God's chosen Messiah, his Savior King for Israel, as well as for the whole world. And in a shorthand form, they were proclaiming everywhere, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, for whatever reason, Saul rejected all of this. We're never really told why. But he treated this gospel as an accursed blasphemy and therefore something that needs to be exterminated from the land lest in case uh, it brings God's wrath upon the land because that's what heresies and false prophecies would do. So this is why Saul gets permission from the high priest and goes to Damascus, a city right outside of uh, Judea, to smoke out these disciples and bring these heretics to holy justice. He's going to confront, he's going to interrogate, and then he's going to arrest them. Then whatever comes after that. What Saul didn't anticipate, though, was that he was actually the one that was on his way to being confronted, interrogated, and arrested, and not by any mere man, but by the Holy One of Israel the true high priest who would surprisingly intercede for him in the end. Now Saul would ask this following question of uh, his interrogator and it's really the most important question any of us can ask. Verse 5 Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Such a deceptively simple question, isn't it? But apart from this question, I contend that we have no true answers to any other ultimate question that haunts us in life. Who am I? Who are we? Why am I here? What's, what's the meaning of all this? So today, we're going to explore this question, this all-important question. Who are you, Lord? And we're going to do so in three parts. And the first part, or the first point, the first answer to this question, who are you, Lord? It is simply, he is the Lord who confronts sin. He is the Lord who confronts sin. Look with me at verse 3, where Saul is all of a sudden knocked off his righteous high horse and uh, experiences just, a, just a, I would say, a little, little, little ounce of the terrible fear of the Lord, who he's not right with, by the way. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, as it turns out, even though Saul was incredibly well-versed in the scriptures and sincerely zealous for the, the faith and traditions of his fathers, and following his heart, tragedy was, he was blind to who the Lord really was. And because he didn't know who the Lord really was, here he is thinking he's on a mission from God. But as it turns out, he's on a mission against God. And the worst kind, he's, he's carrying it out all in God's name. Which is why the Lord confronts him. And he confronts him emphatically. He says his name twice. Whenever you see this, it's, it's really not the best sign. You may be in some trouble. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Enough said. This exposes his terribly lost and sinful condition. And in case we're not feeling this, and in case you're doubting that Saul was a sinner, let me remind you what we would probably label Saul today. We would label him a religious terrorist. A religious terrorist. Saul, with the blessing of the state, literally hunted down Christians, bullied them to blaspheme or recant their faith. And if they didn't, he did everything in his power to have them put away or murdered. Tragically, Saul is the exact kind of figure that our uh, Christian brothers and sisters in Afghanistan might likely face in the coming months as the Taliban grows in power who are actively persecuting Christians. And Afghanistan is not the only part of the world where Christians have to endure such trials and tribulations. So in one sense, Saul is very much the kind of person you might think is beyond saving. Or for being really honest, someone not really worth saving. And therein lies the challenge to pay attention to this testimony of the Lord. All right? This literally, when you think about it, it snaps your head right back. And it reminds you that Jesus' ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Because Jesus looked at this heinous sinner named Saul... And not only did he see someone that he was able to save, but he saw someone worth saving. Saul truly got this. Because here's how he would explain it later in life. Of what the Lord Jesus did for him. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. The saying is, tr is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ 
might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So, why does the Lord Jesus confront Saul or any of us with a genuine horror of our sin? This leads me to my second point and the second answer to this question of who are you, Lord? Which is simply, the Lord is the one who converts sinners. The Lord is the one who converts sinners. Look with me at verse 10 to see how Jesus converts Saul. And then all of a sudden we're introduced to another disciple in Damascus. A disciple that Saul probably set out to persecute. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise. And go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. We'll pause there. So here... Uh, Jesus calls another man by name, and notice he just says it once, Ananias. He's a Jewish disciple of Jesus with a good reputation in Damascus. He's described even later in Acts as a devout man, a devout man. And Jesus had a job for Ananias that day, which would be a chance to help Saul of Tarsus. What? Saul? Not that guy, Lord. Anyone but that guy. Uh, apparently the word had already reached Damascus about Saul, what kind of person he was and what kind of mission he was on. And Ananias, as you might have guessed, he was a little bit perplexed about the Lord's command. But look at verse 15 for the Lord's answer to Ananias, which comes in the form of a command. Verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So the Lord wants us, as well as Ananias, to know that he has a wonderful plan for Saul's life. And that plan would have these two essential parts, inseparable from one another. First, Saul would carry the name of Jesus to basically the whole world, which would involve, second, to suffer for the sake of my name. To suffer. And here's something to note that's really important. Um, this isn't all that exceptional. Actually, if you're familiar with the Gospels, it sounds a lot like the call that Jesus puts out to every disciple right anyone that would consider himself to be a, a follower of, of the way or of Jesus 
Here's what he tells uh, people in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. So, how does Ananias respond to this word from the Lord? He goes. He shows up. He goes to this would-be enemy who's actually desperately waiting for him, for a disciple of the Lord to come that would bring the healing word and touch of the Lord himself. So, verse 17. Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. What a shocking turn of events, really. Here, Saul comes to Damascus to, to murder people like Ananias. And here Ananias is, and he's calling him brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus has sent me. Not to destroy you, but so that you may open your eyes and see. So that you may confess his name and receive the greatest gift of all, the Holy Spirit. Now here's the interesting thing that's hiding, I would say, in plain sight about the Lord's conversion of Saul. You see, while I'm sure that uh, Jesus could have uh, just zapped Saul and, and made him a disciple right away, you know, right then and there on that road, he doesn't do things that way. What does Jesus do instead? And this is really important to take note of, because this is how Jesus typically brings about people's conversions. Jesus sends a mere ordinary disciple to Saul, a man named Ananias, who the Lord saw fit to use as a representative to draw a sinner like Saul to himself. I want us to, to actually take a hold of this, right? The Lord Jesus has seen fit to make a people for himself exactly in this way. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually what every believer is called to participate in according to their gifting and ability. We're all called to be disciple-making disciples who minister the gospel as we share fellowship in the gospel. And Jesus has already dropped a pretty big hint as to why things work this way. All right? The hint is in the first thing that he said to Saul right at the beginning of this. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. You see, the Lord Jesus identifies himself, his very self, his very person with the disciples, right? The people that, that Saul was persecuting. And this Damascus revelation has a lot to do with why I think Saul would go on to refer constantly to the church as the 
body of Christ. Quickly read one example here, Ephesians 5, 29. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. See, when we're converted, the astounding, mysterious reality is that we are actually united to Christ. We actually participate in the life of God, Father, Son, by the Holy Spirit. That becomes our identity. To live is Christ, to die is gain, as Saul would later proclaim. And coming back to Acts, here's what uh, actually happens as a result of Ananias' visit to Saul. He regains his sight, right? Ananias. And then we're told he's baptized which also involves other disciples, maybe Ananias. And then he hangs out with them. He lives with them. He shares fellowship with the disciples. Verse 18, let's look at it real quick. Verse 18, and and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is just a a beautiful and extraordinarily unusual thing that we're witnessing here. Here, on account of what Jesus has done for Saul, he's living in peace. He's reconciled and, and breaking bread with the very disciples that he sought out to murder just just a few days before. Friends. This outcome is not possible apart from the gospel of grace. You may see some short-lived counterfeits here and there. But as far as eternity goes, the gospel is the only means by which such an outcome will be made possible. Now, just as Saul needed other disciples to make progress in the way, Isn't the same true for all of us? I think we live in a culture where we are so often prone to the me and Jesus kind of mode of faith or or thinking. This is why um, I think so many of us are actually enticed by what I call uh, save your life uh, ideologies. Save yourself, save your life ideologies, right? I think they show up pretty much in every sphere of life. Home, work, school. In our capital buildings, in our stores. They're they're all in some way offering a way of saving your own life. But what Jesus offers is ultimately the lose your life <laughs> gospel, right? Now, I want to add fellowship is so vital, right? Regularly gathering with other believers is so vital to serve one another in Christ's name and to be served in Christ's name. I've never seen, not once, a Christian grow in, I would say, strength 
or spiritual health by neglecting fellowship. And this is why. When you neglect fellowship, you neglect Jesus. We're ultimately all part of his body. So, if uh, there's maybe one way we can think about it, it's us and Jesus, right? It's us and Jesus, which is always expressed in our mutual obedience to his word. Now, I want to move on to the third and final answer to this question. Who are you, Lord? And the answer is, he is Jesus who commissions the saints. He is Jesus who commissions the saints. So the Lord first confronts us, and then he converts us, which makes it possible for him to commission us. All right, let's read from verse 20 as we saw begin to live out this commission and proclaim the name that he was once trying to profane. Verse 20, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. I think it's so easy for us to think of conversion in terms of just changing our mind, you know, our intellectual commitments. But if Saul is any example, it's a radical shift in priorities and action. Because what is the Lord's priority? What's priority number one for the Lord? that his name be carried and confessed throughout the world from near and far, from high to low, right? From the palaces of kings to the, the lowliest impoverished villages. And this includes places that have little persecution and much persecution. Why? Why? Because the Lord cherishes his body and he nourishes it. He builds up his body so that it can expand and flourish in reconciling truth and love. Once again, his agenda is eternal life for his people. And this is hard for me, and I know that this might be hard for, for us to hear as well. The Lord just... The Lord doesn't convert us or save us just for our own sake and comfort. It's not fire insurance. The Lord saves us for mission together. Thank God and Jesus Christ for that. That it's not this commission just to me, but once again, us. We're in this together. That's what makes this even bearable when it gets tough. So he commissions us to carry his name. He grants us the privilege of suffering for his name. And you'll just have to take my word on this. It is the most joyful and life-giving call any of us can receive from the Lord. Say the other alternative is to 
continue to strive in futility with everyone else to save our own lives? Be part of these savior life societies? But if you're actually wanting to save your life, Jesus says we must lose them for the sake of his name and his gospel's sake. And this isn't just for the elite apostles, but whoever would be his follower, whoever would be his disciple. And boy, would Saul go on to suffer for the sake of Christ's name. Among other things, here's what he endured. Severe beatings, imprisonment, hunger, exposure, sickness, theft, relational betrayal. I'll just stop there. The list goes on. But here's Saul's own explanation for how and why he endured all this. Let me read from 2 Corinthians 4, 415. For it is all for your sake, all for your sake. He's talking to believers in Corinth. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And this is why we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. He saw what was unseen, right? For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So to conclude, my prayer for all of us is that we would look to the one who is eternal. Right? The one who is actually renewing us day by day. Even in the midst of our suffering. For God's glory and for ours. For yours and for those around you. So when the Lord confronts us, and when the Lord converts us, and when the Lord commissions us, he's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And one day, we're going to proclaim as the one body before the Lord Jesus who came into the world to save sinners like us, to the King of the ages, immortal invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.